turning. If you get past Acts and Romans, 1 Corinthians um, is the next book. If you get into Galatians, Ephesians, those little books in there, turn back to the left. So we started um, our time in 1 Corinthians working through this letter last week. Um, And so last week was a lot of um, kind of laying a foundation, looking at the situation, the context, um, wanting to make sure that we understand that if we're reading someone's letter, if we're looking at their letter, then it's really helpful to know who, who wrote it, who it was sent to, when it was sent, why it was sent, that those factors are going to matter. Um, so I'm going to do a brief little bit of recap. If you weren't here last week, um, we, we do have that sermon up so that you can listen to it um, and, and build a bit of a foundation um, through the book of 1 Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Um, he is currently in Ephesus as he writes it. Um, he had spent roughly 18 months um, in the city of Corinth, uh, about three years prior to the letter. Um, this is actually the second letter um, that we know of that he wrote. We don't have the first letter, but he references it in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, um, that he's written them already. And so he has a long relationship with this church in Corinth. Um, Acts 18 tells us that he spent a year and a half there. Um, and so he is now writing back to a group of people um, that he helped plant the church, that he knows them, he knows them well. Um, he is aware of the different issues going on in the city and in the church. And so he's writing back to continue to pastor them, to continue to disciple them, to, to grow them. Um, Corinth is a city that we would have a lot in common with in just kind of its, its mindset. Um, it's a very independent place. It had been wiped out by Rome. And afterwards, after about 100 years of being dormant, Julius Caesar repopulated the city with freedmen who were former slaves who are now free, and so they have a social status higher than the slaves, but lower than a natural-born Roman. And so they're now given this city basically to rebuild um, and have the chance to, to make it, right? To make it socially, to make it economically. There's, there's no status there other than what they're going to create. In the city of Corinth, it becomes a really viable, very prosperous trade city because it's sitting on an isthmus, which is the skinny part of a peninsula, and so it has a port on both sides. And in order to save time and rather than taking the route around the bottom, they would drag the boats roughly four, four and a half miles across this little inlet. Um, and, and so it's, there's now a canal there that tells you how, how narrow the land is. And so it it becomes a booming, prosperous city, which draws people. And so folks from all over the world um, have an influx there to the city of Corinth. And so it's it's kind of a Roman-driven city, but it's it's in Greece, and so it has a Greek heritage and history, and the surrounding countryside is still predominantly Greek. And now the nations have come to it. And so every religion, thought process, philosophy is there. Um, And so, you've got a city where people have the chance to make it in a way they've never made it before, and they have a buffet of religious options in front of them. And so, Paul is writing to the church that's been there now for three years and saying, hey, there's, you're you're mirroring your culture in some really good ways because the church is really diverse. And he goes, but you're also mirroring them in some really bad ways because a lot of lax morality has swept into the church. And so, kind of the overarching premise that we're going to have through this whole letter, Paul hits on 11 or 12 very specific issues. Kind of the overarching one is this. What does it look like for a church to be distinct 
in a place that is far from the Lord, right? In a culture that is not for the Lord, in a culture that wants nothing to do with Him, what does it look like for the church to be holy and distinct in the midst of that? Because they were actually being accused of being bigots and of being those who hated God because they only chose one God and didn't have a myriad of gods, right? And so we, we can begin to see some, some carryover in our current culture where the church is the one that's often called the bigots, where we're often seen as the ones who are the haters of humanity. And so Paul's going to have some really practical theology and really practical application as we work um, our way through 1 Corinthians over the next couple months. So last week we looked at the greeting in verses 1 through 9. Um, And today we're going to pick up in verse 10. So if you'll read with me. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, "I I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We're going to stop there. So after the initial kind of greeting, Paul is quickly transitioning into one of the first issues we're going to find. It's going to be the issue of unity in the church. And so he has moved from saying, all right, you know, kind of reestablishing connection, and now it's straight to the heart of the first issue. Um, that he wants them to be aware that this issue of unity is going to affect the way the church is seen in Corinth. And how God is worshipped and glorified is based on somewhat of how the church is, is presenting itself. And so what has happened is we've had some, some factions have formed, all right? Some groups have formed in the church. And so Paul has heard about this um, from Chloe, all right, or Chloe's people, most likely Chloe was not a member of the church in Corinth, right? Because if she is, then, she, then he's kind of siding with one of the factions, right? So most likely what it is is that Chloe's a businesswoman who travels between Corinth and Ephesus. And so she has returned to Ephesus where Paul is, and he's writing this letter, and he's like, Chloe and her people have come back, and they've told me what's going on. So we don't even know if Chloe for sure is simply a respected businesswoman Um, if she's a believer who attends the church occasionally when she's there. But the report has come back. He doesn't feel the need to to describe her or to say anything more. So there's obviously, they recognize who she is. They know who she is, and her word matters. Because he he doesn't build an argument as to why he needs to defend why what Chloe has said is the truth. And, and so he's, it's almost this initial shameful thing, right? It's like a parent going, all right, I've heard what you did at school today, right? And, and immediately when you know that the, the news has got to mom, has got to dad before you even got home to tell them, right? And just kind of that dread and that fear and that shame that would be in the, oh man, it's, it's out. It's known. So Paul just says, look, I've heard of what's going on, and he's not applauding them. 
He's not saying, I've heard of how much you're loving Jesus and how you're ministering to the poor. He's saying, I've heard how you're fighting. I've heard how you have cliques and factions within you. How there, how there are these issues developing. What we're going to see is that it's not a theological issue. It's not that some groups are holding to a theological issue and others are disagreeing with when Jesus is coming back or what the gospel is. It's, 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 a, it's factions based on personality. Because we've seen in Galatians, which Paul wrote before this letter, that he is more than willing to call out those who have theological error, right? And to say that you disagree with something or you need to separate yourself from false teachers. So it's not a theological issue. And, and the interesting thing is this, is that the issue is also not with the, the principal players, like the, the groups that, that are mentioned, Apollos and Peter, who is Cephas, and Paul. He's not, those men don't have an issue with one another. Because later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually going to applaud. He's going to talk highly of Apollos. He and Apollos don't have an issue publicly. In Galatians, we see Paul absolutely eviscerate Peter publicly. He is willing to go toe-to-toe with him. And so he doesn't bring up a theological concern with Peter in this situation. So Peter and Apollos and Paul, they're fine. So it's not a theological issue. And it's not a personal issue where people are going, well, you know, I'm, I'm with Paul because Apollos has turned on him. That's not, that's not what's happening. Instead, what is happening is that they are picking preferential things, right? They're picking personalities that they like best, that after Paul was there, Apollos followed and came to Corinth. Peter, we're not sure when he was there, but Peter had spent some time there most likely with his wife. And so now, as their personalities have come in, as they're respected folks, if you, if you read in Acts 18, we find that Apollos um, is a man from Alexandria, that he's very eloquent, that he's a good teacher, um, that he speaks with, with a lot of wisdom and clarity and cleverness, which is very distinct from Paul, who says, I spoke in simple terms and in weakness, right? He's, he's saying, like, we, we don't have the same temperament. We don't have the same personality. We don't have the same preaching style. If you look at Paul's writing and Peter's writings, you see that they have different temperaments and personalities. And so what's happened is these men have come in and groups have said, man, I prefer Paul. And then another group goes, man, I really like it when Apollos is here. And others have said, we really like when Peter's here. We appreciate what he does. And so right? You start to divide over these things that those men aren't asking you to divide over. There's no theological concern. You're just choosing to do it. What is happening is they're taking something from their culture. That in the culture, it was really common for men who um, had a great rhetorical ability or speaking ability is they would go out and they, they loved arguments and displays of winsomeness, and they would then take disciples, those who were loyal to them, And then they would tear down others to elevate themselves. And so this was a really common practice in in the society, in the the community, of those who were powerful, those who had status, those who were smart. They they would have followers. They would have loyalists, disciples, who were very defensive of the guy they followed. And so they wanted him elevated as much as possible because it brought them along with him. Right? And so it's the same idea of, you have that game that people sometimes want to play about who knows the most famous person or how well do you know a famous person? And it's just kind of absurd, right? Because you're like, you met them outside of a concert, right? Like, you, you don't actually know them. You just shook their hand. But you feel like you get some sort of, like, status points 
because you can name someone famous that, that you had a meal with or that you've met or you took a picture with. That's kind of what's going on is that they're, they're, they're holding theirs up as the, like the paradigm of you should, you should be on my team. And Paul's going, this, this is absurd. What are you doing? And yet we know that when we begin to have an issue with someone, right, when we begin to draw lines in the sand, that, that those don't go away easily, right? And so if I disagree with you, the, the easiest thing that's going to happen is I'm going to start nitpicking everything you do, everything you say, everything you don't say, everything you do, everything you don't do, everything that, right, in our day and age, everything that you like on Facebook, everything you don't like on Facebook, why didn't you comment on that? And we begin to build this caricature of who this person is, right? And we begin to assume, and in our minds, all of our arguments, right, rock solid, and they're just a moron, right? Like they're wrong about everything, and you're right about everything, and your case is being built, and you may not actually even be interacting with them at all. It's all going on in your mind that you're creating these, these lines and these divisions, and yet in the church in Corinth, it's now spilled over. It's public, and there's actual legitimate quarreling going on over something that isn't even significant because it's not about the character of God. It's not about theology. It's not about even defending these men because these men don't have an issue with one another. They're simply dividing and trying to build a case as to why their favorite pastor is the best. And because if they're the best, then I'm better than you. And they're elevating their status over fellow believers. There's a question in verse, um, sorry, in verse 12, if what Paul says is, I've, so some of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, and so there's a debate then, if, is, is there a group that actually then also says, I, we follow Christ, right? Is there a group that's actually said, well, we're better than all of you, because we don't even take any of those guys, we just take Jesus, right? Which seems a little absurd, or if Paul, what he's actually saying is, some of you say I follow Paul. Some of you say I follow Apollos. Some of you say I follow Cephas, who is Peter. And then Paul pauses and says, but I follow Christ. Right? That if he's trying to like quickly like lay those aside and say, the point is, is that we follow Jesus. Right? The, the way he, he writes it, it's a little unclear um, as to whether there's a group. Because he doesn't ever mention like a party that follows Jesus in this kind of faction way, again, in 1 Corinthians. And he's going to talk about following Jesus a lot. Um, so mo most likely what he is doing is he, it's like a pause, and he's saying, but I follow Christ. He's not applauding those who follow him. He's not giving them credence or credit. He's saying, we follow Jesus. And so this model of leadership that they're seeing, um, it seeks power. It seeks status for yourself against your fellow believers. Right? It, it, the, you have these competing cliques. And so they're mirroring, they're, they're reflecting their city in really unhealthy ways in this regard. Likely what has happened is that because they're in a Greek kind of city who love wisdom, who love eloquence, who love really good debates and speakers, that Apollos has kind of taken the cake, right? Like he has become the guy for the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth. And Paul who often talks about his weakness, who often talks about his, his lack of, like, good speaking, he's kind of, people are, are opposing him. So Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 just says, I'm weak. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, he'll talk about that he's a tent maker, that he would not allow them to pay him. And the reason is, is in this society, often if, we, if you could pay for a speaker, if you could pay for a pastor, if you could pay for a philosopher, it was a way for you to gain status, right? You could say, I take care of that guy. And all of you follow him, well, I'm the guy that pays him, right? It was another way to elevate yourself. So Paul's saying, I don't want to take your money because I don't want you to use that to elevate yourself and say that because you follow Paul or because you pay Paul, now that you've got something other than Jesus. And so Paul is now in a, in a weird place because he's got to reassert his authority, which has been kind of taken away unintentionally by Apollos. He's got to reassert it w- with gentleness. Right? Because what he doesn't want to be is a guy who comes in and like in a domineering way says, this is what you're going to do because that's not the type of leader that he is. And it's not the type of leader he wants the Corinthian church to expect. And so he's got to reassert his authority so that he can encourage them to be unified, so that he can speak to their behavior and call them out on it and for them to care what he has to say. Right? Because if, if he doesn't have any authority, then this letter goes in the trash. Right? They don't care what he has to say. And so he wants to do it without creating further factions, issues. Um, and so look what he does in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. This word brothers um, is inclusive of the church. It, it, it just means to, I appeal to y'all, to brothers and sisters. He doesn't say, all right, here, let me tell you what's going on, and here's how it's going to be, and here's how the cow eats the cow, right? Like, he doesn't, so what he does, he says, let me appeal to you. I'm asking as a peer by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he doesn't take his, um, the fact that he is an apostle or that he has divine authority. He says, I'm appealing to you. I'm asking you to consider this, and what I want you to consider is Jesus, What's the one thing we have in common? Greeks and Jews, right? Those who came from pagan backgrounds, those who are Romans. He says the one thing that everyone here has in common is Jesus. And so I'm going to ask, I'm going to appeal to you in the name of Jesus, right? The one thing that we agree on, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment, he appeals to what they have in common. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1, 9, he says, look, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying, look, you're all called to the same place. It's into relationship with Jesus, into the fellowship of Jesus. We all have been called to the same place. And so there's no reason to be divided. And so I'm appealing to you based on what you trust and know and believe in Christ to, to reconsider your divisions and your arguments. And he does this then by asking some really absurd rhetorical questions. Look down in verse 13. He goes, is, is Christ divided? He's going, like, can we divide Christ out and you get a piece of him and you get a piece? Of, he's like, no, right? We get Christ, all of us. We don't have more or less. Then he goes, was Paul crucified for you? He's like, did I die to secure your right standing and to satisfy the wrath of God. No. Why? So why would you call on my name? My name is worthless to you because I didn't die for you. He's, he's, he's trying to like shock them into like out of their doldrums here and go, look, 
I didn't die for you. And if I didn't, then the Apollos didn't either. And Peter didn't either. Jesus did. So let's follow Jesus. Then he goes, not only that, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Right? He said, did anyone go, in the name of Paul, I baptize you? No, you're baptized in the name of Jesus. He's saying, all of you, you weren't baptized in the name of Apollos or Peter or any other philosopher or preacher or speaker. It's, we have one thing in common, that Jesus is who rescues us. Jesus is who saves us. Jesus who has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf, that we're baptized into the name of Jesus because He has paid for our redemption. So he's trying to bring them together and to consider the source that they all have in common. I was at, uh, years ago when I was a student minister, we were at camp in Glorietta. And they had a pretty big name um, musician that year named Todd Agnew. And at that point, he had songs on the radio. And so a lot of the kids knew him, knew of him. And as we went out, you know, there's several thousand people in the room and people rush the stage, and they're yelling, and they're screaming, and they're yell- cheering Todd's name, and right, kind of being teenagers at a concert, except it's not a concert. It's a worship service. And so Todd plays a song or two, and he finally stops. He's like, what are y'all doing? Go back to your seats. Like, why are, why are you right here yelling my name when we're singing to Jesus? And so about half the kids kind of go, you know, filter back to their seats a little bit embarrassed. And about half stay there, and he's, like, he's finally like, I'm not playing until you go back to your seats. And right, I mean, it's just kind of an awkward scene. And so they, they go back and play another song, and then people start yelling out from their seats, you know, we love you, Todd. Or, and he just walks off the stage. And then, you know, there's several thousand of us sitting there, and we don't know, I mean, his band is like, uh, what are we supposed to do? And like, and finally, someone has to go back there, and, and he comes out, and he's like, please hear me say this. My name doesn't matter. I can do nothing for you. All I can do is point you to Jesus who can rescue us, who can save us, who is worthy of the worship. Right? That's what Paul is saying. Is he's like, it doesn't matter who your favorite preacher is. It matters that Jesus is our Redeemer. So, church, I just, like, it doesn't, my name does nothing for you. The name on this building does nothing for you. Jesus is who saves. Jesus is who rescues. Jesus is who redeems and who is worthy of worship. We're baptized not into the name of Jeremy or Redeemer or Rex or your gospel community leader. You're baptized in the name of Jesus for His glory. That Jesus is enough. You might think if you look down that Paul is knocking baptism a little bit because he's like, I thank God that I didn't baptize very many of you, <laughs> you know? And you're like, oh, what's going on here? And, and he says, so I, I baptized Crispus and I baptized Gaius. And, and then, and, and you see this idea that this is just a letter that's really being written down that like Paul's probably walking around the room, okay, I baptized Crispus and I baptized Gaius. And he goes on, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. Oh, yeah, I also baptized Stephanus' family, right? And the, the guy's just like writing it down going, okay, Paul, this is a little out of order here, <laughs> right? And, and as he's writing it, he goes, I don't know if I baptized anyone else, but Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. And what he's saying is baptism itself is not salvific. Baptism itself is not what saves us. And so it doesn't matter if I baptize you or not. Any, any believer could baptize someone. 
Because Jesus is the one who saves. And so baptism is, is simply a way to, to honor that and to, be, to act in obedience to it and to show the church what the Lord has done in you. And it seems that the church in Corinth had some idea that there was like a transference that was taking place. That like if you could get one of the big wigs to baptize you, you got something from that. Right? And so you could be like, baptized by Paulus. Y'all wish you were baptized. Right? And he's like, that's absurd. Stop it. I'm glad I didn't baptize y'all. Right? Like he's, you can tell he's getting worked up here. But it's not a way of knocking baptism as much as he's saying, look, the point that came to preach the gospel, that Jesus is the one who saves, that it's his life, his death, and his resurrection that gives you hope, not that you can tie yourself to somebody's name or to somebody's wagon, right? That's not what we're looking for. And so what we see is this, is that Paul's desire is twofold. He wants them to see the gospel is sufficient compared to wisdom. Look at what he says in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So the, the, the people of Corinth loved impressive, like, oratory skills and displays of rhetoric and, and talk. And people would be wowed by it, and they would follow them, and they would applaud them, and they would say, you're so persuasive. And they loved, like, the, the way that you talked more than the the, the matter of what you talked about, right? It was form over content. And so they would applaud someone just because it was like, you, you dismantled that guy. We don't even agree with what you said, but you did it so impressively. We love it. And Paul's like, who cares about wisdom? We have wisdom because we have the gospel. And it doesn't even need to be said in a convincing way. It's this idea of like, like could I somehow like in a, an apologetic way, like talk to you, and all of a sudden I walk you into a trap, and you're like, oh no, I have to believe in Jesus now, right? Because you tricked me into it with your winsome talking and your, your foolproof arguments. He's like, that is absurd. It is not by the power of man or the power of words or the power of wisdom that we are saved, but it's by the hand of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he says, and you don't have to be eloquent to say that. And it does not lose power to say it simply. You don't have to be impressed into the kingdom. Because what happens is this. You begin to speak powerfully and eloquently, and people begin to applaud you. And they like what you have to say, and so you begin to become prideful. And you begin to think that what you say matters. And so if I begin to see someone else getting credit, I need to destroy them. I need to tear them down so that you'll come back and approve of me and applaud me. So I can't let anyone else do better than me. And so now I leave the message and the gospel behind, right? Because I need your approval and I need your applause. And so Paul is saying, I didn't come in an impressive way. I wanted you to have the content. I wanted you to have the meat. And you're over here applauding people because they speak good. And he's like, but it's not about the words. It's about the message itself. The gospel is enough. And he wants the church in Corinth to be grounded in this, that the gospel is sufficient, that Jesus is enough that it is what saves and that God gets the glory. And so when Paul comes and speaks in simple terms and people trust it and believe it, people aren't going, Paul, you convinced us. They're going to God be the glory because he has rescued us. Now, this, look, this doesn't mean that we, we speak in as dumbed-down way as we can, right? 
But it's that who is drawing the attention? Who is getting the credit? Who is getting the glory? Our oratory skills or a God who is able to reach any heart? Right? A God who sent his son to live the life we couldn't, to die the death that we deserved, who beats sin and Satan and death and lives today. Does our pride demand more approval? Do we, do we want to snuff out others so that we get credit? Or do we say, I don't care who gets the credit because I want God to have it. I, I'm not concerned with who you think the best preacher is because I want God to get the glory because He is who saves. And so we're going to see Paul continue to build out this argument con- comparing the gospel with the wisdom of the day. Because here's the thing. If you want intelligent speaking and winsome thought and all of these things, right, that they were applauding, the gospel says this, you're not enough. You need more. You need Jesus. And so the gospel pokes a hole at your arrogance and at your pride. And so if you're up there applauding and wanting to be applauded for how you're doing, and then the message says, but I'm actually not enough. I needed Jesus to save me. You're going to quit saying that. Because that means people aren't going to applaud and they're not going to really enjoy hearing that. So Paul's saying, if you only want the winsome ones, you're going to lose the gospel completely. But those who would stand and say, here's the message. Jesus saves. And we all were in desperate need of it, myself included. He's like, then God gets the glory. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter. The second desire he has is this that he wants them to be unified for their sake, but also for the world's sake, because the world is watching. And so if the norm in their culture and in their society was that everyone divided, everyone picked a a guy to follow, and they were loyalists, and they tore down other people, he's saying, then the church shouldn't look like that, because it's just like the world. The church should be different, because we have something better, and we have humility And we have freedom because we've been approved of by the God of the universe. And so I don't need your approval. And you don't need mine because God's given us his. And so now we can be humble and we can appear weak and we can appear not to have it all together because God is transforming us. And I don't have to impress you because that's not where I'm gaining my approval. So we have a living king who has beaten sin and death. He's alive and he empowers us with his spirit. And so here's where I want us to end is one way that we can kind of live this way. How do we fight for unity as a church? And I want to talk about it in in relation to our gospel communities. If you've been around as much at all, you'll hear us say all the time that our gospel communities are not like status set. They're not like stage of life set. That we fight for them to be differing ages, life stages, situations. Look, some of them are more homogenous than others naturally, right? But we're constantly fighting for them to have variation. We want them to be families. We want them to reflect this, that we look around the room and we're not all the same age with the same amount of kids in the same life stage doing the same job. We're different. And if we're a family, right, a family's not made up of just cousins, they have aunts and uncles and grandparents and nieces and nephews. And like, right? like there's different life stages and different situations, and we need that. And so I love the fact right, that there are multiple decades of a span of life in our gospel community. That the young don't think that they're wiser than they are, right? 
and that those who are older can pour back into those who are younger. And look, can I just tell you, if, if, if you are, I'm picking a random age, if you are 45 plus and you think you're kind of just done because your kids are gone, I promise you those who are beneath you, following after you with kids or getting married, they, they, they long to hear how you've done it. And not just your success stories. They want to know how you survived parenting multiple kids. They want to know how you survived being married for as long as you have. They want to know how Jesus has been faithful to you, right? Like, and, and please be willing to turn around and pour back into them. And it's why we want our gospel communities to be family. We need it desperately because we live right now in a world that's tendency and proclivity we are prone to divide, and right now there's so much tension in our country and our nation that everyone is returning to their corners, right, and getting around those who are most like them and going, it's safe here. And so we're doing it based on um, gender. We're doing it based on sexuality. We're doing it based on race. We're doing it based on political alliance, right? And we're, we're separating, and we're going, right? We're creating factions, and we're beginning to caricature everyone else and the other ones about how they're such a moron. And we're the right ones. We're prone to divide. It's easy to divide. That's what the world is doing. And so if we are going to look different, if, we're gonna be, if it's going to be clear that we have the Spirit of God who is uniting us, because Paul will later write to the church in Ephesus, which is where he's at right now as he's writing to Corinth, and he'll say in chapter 2, that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between us. There is nothing that is higher that divides us than Christ who unites us. That the only thing, church, that we need in common is not life stage, it's not state that you're born, it's not, it's not anything other than Jesus. That He is enough to triumph over all the things that divide us. That being said, it's not easy. <laughs> There's effort that has to be involved, and it's why our tendency is to divide into places that with people who think more like us, vote like us, talk like us, listen to music like us, eat the food that we eat. That is easy. And yet what the gospel does is it says, no, 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 no. The nations are a family. We are a family, right? When you have children, when you adopt children, when you foster children, you're not asking their siblings, what do you think, right? Like, you're just born into it. You don't get to pick that that's your brother or that's your sister. You're born, and it happens. And now they're family, and you've got to work through it and figure it out. As a church, we are adopted as sons and daughters into a family, right? And so as we look around this room, I don't get to just hang out with the people who are most like me because God has brought us into a family. We've got to figure it out. We have to be willing to work, to work through differences, we have to be willing to be quick to assume the best about one another. We have to live the four dozen one another's together. We have to pursue one another's. Why? Because God has pursued us, because He's torn down the wall of hostility, and because He says we are image bearers of Christ, right? That every life has value. And so we don't get to say, this group of people, you're not welcome. We want them all because they all reflect the glory of God and His image. Here's where it gets hard. It means we begin to lay down some of our preferences. Here's the thing I love that I've, you, some of you have told me there are things at Redeemer that aren't your favorite, like that you feel the comfort to say that, but that you want to be here because you, right, that you're a part of the family. 
Like we lay down our preferences. We have the right in Christ to hold on to anything we want. We have freedom. But our preferences can stop mission. It can stop ministry because we start to bicker about things that don't matter. And so we lay down our preferences of, well, I would like it better if Jeremy would tuck in his shirt, right? Or I would like it better if we would sing more hymns. Or I would like it better if we did this. Or we did, and we lay those things down and we say, but for the sake of our King, because there's a lost world that is in desperate need of the hope that we have, let us lock arms and run into darkness together because we have the light of the world. And the songs that we sing and the way that we do things don't matter as much when people are dying, right? When people are, are enslaved to their sin and when we know the truth and we have hope in it. And with that said, I praise God for the unity here. The unity that's at this place is unique to anything I've ever seen, ever. Later in June, we will be seven years old. Seven years of incredible unity, right? That we, let's praise God for that, but let's also understand that it's fragile, right? If you want to know why Ananias and Sapphira were dropped dead in Acts because they lied to the church, it's because God cares about unity a lot, and because the unity is really fragile. And so we, when we begin to hold up our preferences and begin to caricature someone else in the church, we are tearing at the fabric of unity, which is reflecting that God has done something here. Because when the church reflects its community and is unified, the world's going, that's not normal. You should hate each other. You shouldn't want to be with each other. Why are they in your home? Why are you hanging out together? And we say, because of the gospel of Jesus. Because these are no longer just people. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He has made us a family. So church, two more thoughts and we'll be done. Remember, he's writing a letter to a group of people who think they've arrived. They are so hyper-spiritual, they think they don't need anything else. And if we're not careful, then we don't think this is for us. And we don't think we have anything else to learn from any people who are different than us. And so then we're not quick to listen. We're quick to tell them who we are. And yet as a church, right, that we would be welcome to say, come tell us your story. Come be here and, and, and be willing to say, you don't have to be okay, right? That we're not holding ourselves up as some beacon of perfect spirituality. That everyone here has got it figured out. And it's why we want to walk in obedience and in transparency because we're striving together. Not for my status that you think I'm the greatest thing ever, but that you would see that I am pursuing Jesus. And that I can tell you where I'm broken and where I'm struggling and where I've failed and where he's bringing hope in my life. And that I'm encouraged when you do the same. That we're not worried about our status, but we're worried about the glory of God. And then we will be a unique picture and a community apologetic to the world who doesn't see this anywhere else who's used to angry arguments and conversations, but is not used to people who are differing, trusting one another. Paul is going to walk through this letter saying, look, this is my heart for you. This is my desire for you, and it's not without problems, right? It means we have to be reconcilers. It means we have to work to be at peace. It means, right, that we're going to make up our differences. And it, but here's the thing. We can because Jesus is good to us, 
And He's alive, and He's given us His Spirit. And so we have the tools we need to reconcile because we were the enemies of God who have been reconciled to Him. You cannot be more of an enemy to me than that. So we can reconcile. Right? We don't, we don't put things under the rug. We, we fight to be family because He's alive and He is worth it. So church, this section kind of ends um, Paul's intro. And he's just going to begin to be these really practical steps of how do we walk in unity, right? And he's going to do that for the first, the the next three chapters through chapter four. Um, And then we're going to hit 10, 11 other topics, right, of just what does it look like as the church to be distinct in our world? We're asking the Spirit to illuminate our hearts as to where we need refinement. And we also want to praise Him that He's given us the tools we need for the fight, that He's given us the tools that we need to be a family that is distinct in a culture that doesn't really want us to be. Let me pray for us.